and welcome to the Rookies F1 podcast. My name is Chloe and I've been a Formula One fan since 2013. My name is Rachel and I've been a Formula One fan since 2020. This podcast started as a way to teach Rachel about Formula One, but now the rookie has become the master. Um, I don't know about that. Not exactly sure how a car works, but do go on. So join us as we talk about Formula One. And even more controversies because my fellow rap people, we are on tier number four of the F1 controversy iceberg. Thank you if you've listened to all of the tiers before this one. (laughs) And if you haven't, go back and listen to them. (laughs) What are you doing? Start with number four insane this is a civilized society you start at one and make your way down yes come on guys come on we have at least some civilization civilization that's not uh uh um decorum decorum we are very decorumed here at the rookies (laughs) great which is exactly why i called you all my fellow rap people (laughs) because that's what people with decorum do because we've got all the grace and decorum of a reversing dump truck. Boop. Do you Boop. get that reference? Boop. Uh, yes, I think. You won, Jane. Where, do, where is it from? You won, Jane. Enjoy the oh, money. Oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> sad little life, Jane. What a sad little life, Jane. <laughs> I hope you take the money because you have all the... You have all the grace and decorum of a reversing dump truck. <laughs> oh, that is British culture. That is British culture. Um, yeah. As so, in my in our usual bid not to date these controversy iceberg podcasts, I'm going to very briefly date this podcast by saying, as you'll notice, it's not an Imola podcast. That's because Imola did not happen. Well, the the GP Emilia Romagna GP did not happen. Imola constantly happens because it's a region. Um, sadly, going through hard times right now so lots of love to Imola yeah it's a, it's sad that Imola couldn't happen um obviously the the right decision was made um yes definitely surprisingly the, actually sadly <laughs> f1 doing the right thing gosh um but yeah hopefully they'll be back next year but it is what it is Will it be rescheduled? Probably not. No, I think they've said it won't be. No. And I don't think they should. Why Why try and fit? Because some people said about fitting, fitting it between Monza and Singapore, but then, like, how many races have you got on the trot then? I don't it's know. It's not but worth no need to reschedule. it. It's fine. No one's bothered about it. Anyway, back to not dating the podcast. Um, tier four. We're getting spicier. It's getting, getting more unknown. We're getting more serious. But we're also having fun. <laughs> Are you ready, Chloe? I'm ready. Are you ready, our dear listener? I'm ready. Oh, th- oh thank you. Oh, the voice. <laughs> <laughs> I heard you. Let's start, if I can find my notes. Which are right here. So... Entry number one on tier four of the F1 controversy iceberg by at F1 Headassery on Twitter is Hans Heyer or Heyer. I'm going to say Heyer. Hans Heyer is a German racing driver who mostly raced in touring cars. He did, though, participate in one Formula One race, the 1977 German Grand Prix. Now, you may recall that I said he mainly raced touring cars. Prior to the German Grand Prix, Heyer's single-seater car experience consisted of two European F2 races, one where he finished sixth and one where he failed to qualify, so, you know, not looking too good for an F1 race. Um, Hans Heyer entered the German Grand Prix with ATS's second car, however, he did not qualify. His German Grand Prix experience didn't end there, though. He decided that despite not qualifying for the race, he would participate in it anyway, slipping out of the pits and joining the race. And the thing is, no one noticed until his gearbox failed. 
Which then, obviously, at that point, he was disqualified and then eventually completely banned from entering Formula One, participating in Formula One. But it does put him in the record books because he is the only driver credited with a did not qualify, did not finish, and a disqualification in the same race. That is, it's it's crazy that he was able to get away with it. I respect the boldness. I respect it. He saw, he, you know what, he saw his opportunity. He was like, am I ever going to get to this chance to race again? No. He, he saw other people slacking. And he thought, you know he what, I may get disqualified, but am I going to get this opportunity again? No. I'm going to take it. That's it. Just he might for the be banned from participating in Formula One again, but would he have got to participate in it anyway? No. Probably not, because he wasn't very good. So, so I, I kind you of... You know what, Hans? I respect it. Get it. <laughs> I respect it. I respect the grind. Next entry. Energy. Um, <laughs> so our next entry is the William slash Brabham water tanks. Going into the 1982 season, there was a big distinction between teams. Those who are consistently using turbocharged engines, so Renault and Ferrari, and those who weren't. The teams that weren't consistently using the turbo engines, such as Williams, Brabham, McLaren and Lotus, needed to find a way to make up time on their turbocharged counterparts. Therefore, they looked towards loopholes in the regulations. Colin Chapman, founder of Lotus, came up with the idea that in order to reduce the weight of cars during the races, a reserve water tank could be added under his cars, explained through brake cooling, that when filled would take the car over the weight limit. Mid-race, the water in the tank would be discarded, thereby making the car lighter and, most importantly, quicker. The tank would then be refilled before the car would be weighed, allowing it to be compliant with the rules. Uh, And, you know, the teams that I mentioned before that weren't using turbocharged engines use these ideas along with Lotus, who founder came up with the idea. These water tanks were used in the 1982 Brazilian Grand Prix. KK Rosberg, who drove for Williams, qualified third for the event, with Renault's Prost sticking it on pole with a time six seconds faster than last season's pole at Brazil, showing the benefits of the turbocharged engines, and Ferrari's Villeneuve in second. At the start, Rosberg slipped back to fourth and eventually sixth behind Brabham's Piquet and Williams' Patrice. Thanks to their water tanks emptying, as well as a number of retirements, PK and Rosberg actually ended up finishing first and second. After this race, however, FISA, which is basically now the FIA, found out about the water tank trick. It's important to remember that whilst this exploited a loophole, it was not against the rules. Despite this, FISA disqualified PK and Rosberg, giving the win to Prost. This was understandably seen as a draconian punishment considering that the rules had not been explicitly broken. Additionally, following the disqualifications, McLaren's Watson and Lotus's Mansell were bumped up into second and third and not disqualified despite using the same water tank trick because Renault had only protested the cars in front of Prost. This only served to strengthen calls to suggest that Jean-Marie Ballest, Ballest, Ballestre, French name. The then president of FISA was biased towards his countryman Prost and was acting in such a manner. Following this, there was a, boy- there was a boycott by the British teams at the following Grand Prix in San Marino. Not in San Marino, it would be the San Marino Grand Prix. But this did nothing to affect the ultimate result of the Brazilian Grand Prix. Despite this, due to Renault's reliability issues and the tragedy that befell Ferrari, K.K. Rosberg ended up winning his first World Drivers' Championship, despite only winning a single Grand Prix. Boom. Loopholes. God. Loopholes. To be fair, yeah, like, at the end of the day, the FISA at the time, I guess, like, don't be punishing people for your own, like, poor planning. Like, at the end of the day, if you're able to successfully exploit a loophole... Fair enough. If if, if the governing exact body rule, don't like that, then they can implement rules to prevent it happening the following season, but they can't punish mm-hmm. you for exploiting it at the time. Exactly. And it's, you know, bias towards a driver. 
wouldn't be surprising. <laughs> Where have we seen that it before? Be <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's yeah. It was a bit draconian. Ultimately, you know, KK Rosberg ended up winning the drivers' championship. Um, obviously there was unfortunate circumstances throughout the season, but yeah, that's an interesting one. I hadn't heard of that before. Imagine you didn't. No. If you have, and you're listening to the podcast and you have, props to you. You know more than us, which isn't that hard, <laughs> really. <laughs> um, okay, next one. We're moving oh, back into F1 politics. It's the FISA Foca War. So, FISA, F-I-S-A, which has since dissolved into the FIA, something like that, was the sporting government body for motor racing events. FOCA, aka the Formula One Constructors Association, was the organisation representing many of the constructors. The FICA FOCA... The FISA... Is it FISA FOCA war was essentially a battle for control of Formula One between the two organisations. This battle existed through the late 70s and early 80s, with there being arguments about FOCA believing FISA to be biased towards larger and better funded teams, as well as annoyances about the commercial aspects of the sport. The first major confrontation was at the 1980 Spanish Grand Prix. FISA wanted to find the majority of the FOCA teams who had not gone to the driver briefings at the Belgian and Monaco races. Additionally, FISA said that if these fines were not paid, then the drivers involved would have their racing licenses revoked. Despite this, the race went ahead at the insistence of King Juan Carlos without FISA's sanctioning or the support of the bigger factory teams, leading it to be run as a non-championship event. Another major dispute happened because of the formation of the World Federation of Motorsport in November 1980, which published a rulebook and calendar for a proposed rival championship named the World Professional Drivers' Championship. The FOCA team staged a Formula One race under the World Federation of Motorsport in February 1981. However, nothing more happened due to the lack of major factory team attendance, poor fan support and limited media coverage. As a result, the FOCA teams begrudgingly returned to the FISA World Championship in time for the first race. There was another major dispute in 1982 when FISA introduced a clause into the drivers' super licenses, stating that drivers had to drive for the team they were currently contracted to and no other. Opposing the introduction of this clause, the Grand Prix Drivers' Association, led by Didier Peroni and Nicky Lauda, organised a driver's strike at the 1982 South African Grand Prix with only one driver not taking part. Uh, I might be wrong, but I think... Have you seen the pictures of the drivers having, like, a sleepover? Yeah. Back then? I think that might be from this. I might be wrong, but I think it is. Uh, After lengthy debates and negotiations between the GDPA, FISA and FOCA, the dispute was settled and the clause was ultimately dropped. The culmination of the FISA Foca War was at the 1982 San Marino Grand Prix where, in theory, all FOCA-aligned teams were to boycott the event following the events of the 1982 Brazilian GP with the water tanks. Uh, In addition to the punishment for the Brazilian GP being extremely harsh, the teams using the water tanks had requested a postponement of the next race in order to consider the effects of banning the tanks, arguing that it involved a change in the regulations. The race organisers, however, refused to postpone the race. Terrell, Ocella, ATS and Tolman, all FOCA line teams, didn't actually boycott the race, though, citing sponsor obligations. Although, despite that, only 14 cars took part in the race. Uh, ultimately, while the FISA FOCA issues were never truly resolved, the Concord Agreement represented an end to that war. This one, I... This one was one of the ones that... I remember I, I wrote the notes for a while too, but it took me a while to write the notes because there's like so much, and some of it is so political feeling that it's hard to really wrap it up concisely and in a really understandable way. Because I feel like you could write a book around. on it. Yeah, yeah. I feel like that's one that you could read. I feel like we could do a whole podcast episode. Um into that one if we wanted because it's you know it's quite a quite a big one but 
Yeah. So the teams don't agree with the big guns. F1 is hysterical because it's like Groundhog Day. Like, drama happens and it's like, oh, this has happened before. This has happened before. This has happened before. Anything happens, this has happened before. It's the same. It's just like loops of drama. Yeah. Exactly. It's just quite interesting, um, really. And it, it never, you know, especially in the sense of teams get angry at the main governing body or whatever it, it, it there never seems to be a big sort of like oh we're happy there always seems to be like a sort of lingering tension but they sort of sort it out at the end don't really get anywhere but it's like you know what off dog off a dog's back a duck's back uh, uh but you know it does happen it wouldn't surprise me if we see it happening in the not so distant future with the you know Stefano Domenichelli talking about adding more races to the calendar and then doing more and more things Can he to not? try and jazz F1 up Can when he not? realistically all they need to do is change the regulations to make the cars smaller. We just want we just want smaller cars and then we'll be happy. <laughs> we want I don't care if at that point if at that point there's not many overtakes, like that's that's okay. But I'm right sorry, now but the cars what are coming the point? heavy and massive. What is the point of adding more races to the calendar if the cars aren't competitive. Mm. We're essentially watching the same race happen 23 times. Why? Um, and the thing is, every time it's in check, mate. I mean, yeah, I'm sorry we're going off on a bit of tangent here. But if they're going to keep adding street tracks as well, like, your cars can't get past each other in these big, massive hunks of metal. Like if you're gonna keep adding street tracks, you're gonna you need to make the cars smaller, because you know at least with the the road courses, it's all right if you've got bigger cars because there's runoff because, you know they're wider. But when you you know Monaco is never gonna be that good until they make the cars thinner because how do you overtake at Monaco apart from in the pits? Anyway. That's a debate for another day, and for another day, I mean the next podcast, and the podcast after that, and the podcast after that, because we're angry. (laughs) Right, next entry, Alonso 2006 Monza Quali penalty. So, during Q3 of the 2006 Italian Grand Prix, Fernando Alonso picked up a puncture on the escape road, losing part of his bodywork in the process. As a result, Alonso spent most of Q3 in the garage and by the time he came out again, only had about a minute and a half to get around the track before the chequered flag. Felipe Massa argued that whilst Alonso was on this outlap, he slowed into the final corner, losing Massa three tenths, which was ultimately a difference between him getting pole. Subsequently, Alonso was docked his three best times in qualifying, dropping him from fifth to tenth. This penalty was hugely controversial, with Alonso being left fuming. Surprise, surprise. He claimed that he was having to push hard, and when shown the video footage to reporters at a press conference, Renault insisted that Massa was never less than 100 metres behind Alonso. Of course, the issue here is what distance qualifies as blocking. Considering how short Monza is as a track compared to other circuits on the calendar, we expect cars to get relatively close to each other in qualifying. And then, especially considering how quickly Alonso had to get around the track, you can see why this is controversial. Why would he slow up into the final corner? But is it fair? Is it unfair? Perhaps even Ferrari bias by the stewards? (laughs) Shock! It's up to you, besties. (laughs) I don't know. To be fair, I think that season worked out pretty well for Fernando Alonso, if I remember. Can he complain? Quick, I can't speak in the grand scheme of things. Quickly. Blimey, Nick. Blimey, Nick. I haven't got a bottle of water with me. This is a problem. Can't pronounce my R's anymore. Next entry. Next century. Williams. Next Entry. I was going to say, what in the I multiverse? I will try to enunciate. We've got Doctor Who better. on the podcast. Next century. <laughs> <laughs> We're looking into the future, guys. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, yeah. Did you see when Bummin 
baby Vettel and baby Raikkonen went into each other and then shouted obscenities about each other's dads. <laughs> God, that was such an iconic moment. Oh, sorry guys, that's a spoiler. You haven't got there yet. <laughs> Next entry is the Williams Spanish GP tyre conspiracy. In quite a spectacular and unusual victory, Pastor Maldonado won the 2012 Spanish Grand Prix. This was the team's first win since the 2004 Brazilian Grand Prix and their most recent win in relation to current day, a fact that is enough to ignite conspiracy theories. However, in addition, the race took place a month after founder Frank Williams' 70th birthday. Conspiracy theories claim that Williams was supplied with performance-enhancing tyres for Frank Williams' birthday. Hmm. A fire that occurred in the Williams' garage later only, pardon the pun, added fuel to the fire, with many claiming that this fire was started to get rid of evidence. Team consultant Alexander Verz denies this theory, however, stating in a 2020 interview with ORF that he and Williams' chief designer Edward simply were the first to understand how to heat the front tyre over the rim, resolving the issue of airflow volume, cooling the wheels via the rim. Um, I've heard about the fire yeah. before, <laughs> but I've not heard about the... I feel like a fire would be a pretty dangerous, like... Because it's kind of like, you could surely, ruin, surely, like, a, someone could die. Exactly. Surely, if you want to get rid of evidence, there's a better way of doing it than setting the whole blooming... Garrett especially if like especially if like the FIA or Pirelli or, or whoever was in on it like and I'm sure that Pastor, I'm pretty sure Pastor Manado had to go in to like save his nephew or something like I get that it's a it's a odd sort of word Pastor Maldonado he won a a GP for Williams that you know have is the only win in 8 years then and they haven't won in the 11 years since but like surely not I mean I can't say for certain that it's wrong maybe, but I feel like a fire is a pretty dramatic just, way to go about maybe it maybe it's just a big fat coincidence that may, yeah but then again maybe not who knows <laughs> like I am I am a naive person there is a whole dark world out there in F1 that I am unaware of anything can happen there's probably been a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes that we aren't aware of. Who knows what to believe? Yeah, yeah. Avril Lavigne, blooming clone. Cloned Avril Lavigne, guys. That happened. And no one's gone to the moon. That happened. Paul McCartney's been dead for years. Mmm... He's been cloned. And lizard people. <laughs> lizard people exist. Yeah. The moon landing didn't happen. Um, <laughs> it didn't happen. No. This is this is all a joke, by the way. <laughs> I think. Of course. Um, right. Next entry is option 13. It's important to first note that for the 1994 Formula One season, electronic aids were banned as provided for in the technical regulations due to fears that they were putting more emphasis on the car than driver talent. This included power brakes and traction control systems which had been allowed the previous season. At the French Grand Prix, after a particularly good start, Benetton were accused of cheating, not the only time this season, with many suspecting that they were using traction control. In July, the FIA stated that after analysing Benetton's black boxes from Imola, they found a launch control system in the software, which included what seemed to be a hidden trigger system. During their investigation into the system, the FIA found several discrepancies regarding the system's capabilities, some of which even surprised Benetton, including that the system could only be switched on by a laptop PC, the menu did not reveal launch control as an option, and launch control was an option and could be scrolled to, but it was not visible, aka option 13. I'm trying to get my head around that, but I, mean, I wrote it. Benetton claimed that whilst they knew the code existed, it was only used in testing and could not be activated by Schumacher, 
who was in the Benetton car at the time. The rules in place at the time prevented only the use of traction control and not the existence of software that could be used to activate it, so as the FIA had no substantial proof of Benetton using it, no action was taken. Had they found evidence, there is a possibility that Benetton would have been excluded from the World Championships, which, considering Michael Schumacher won it with Benetton that year, would have been pretty, pretty big. Uh, we still do not know to this day whether Benetton used Option 13, with many opinions going both ways. So interesting, that technical. It's like it exists, but can they use it? Can they not? Did Were they aware of it? How much were they aware of it? Like, this is, this is the interest. This is a, you know, this is controversial because no one, you know, I mean, you really don't know. And considering they went on and won the championship, was it illegally, illegally done? Let's... Let's I mean, strip, there was more let's drama start that a petition, season. strip them of the championship. Strip them of the championship now. Oh, I feel so dumb. I really struggle to get my head wrapped around all of these technical things. Oh, but and tell me about it. You know how long it took me to write, write these things, trying to get my head around it? It's, um, yeah, it's, it's... But this is why they're controversies, because... No one knows. You know, we're going deep in. No one knows. <laughs> no one knows. No one really knows. And that's why they're controversial. Okay, next entry. Um, I'm going to assume a pronunciation because it's Spanish. McLaren Yarama DSQ. I'm saying Yarama because it starts with a J and it's Spanish. So I'm assuming it's Yarama. Apologies if it's not my friends. Oh, would it be Harama if it's J? Juan does not Juan Juan. So it'd be Harama. I'm going to assume it's Harama and potentially look a fool. But do you approve of this, Chloe? Can you just like make me feel validated, please? I will willingly accept my title as a fool because I don't know any better. Cool, okay, two fools. This controversy took place at the 1976 Spanish Grand Prix held at the Circuito del Jarama and involves the disqualification of former McLaren driver and eventual world champion of this very season, James Hunt. Hunt took the win at the Spanish GP, his first win of the season. But after the race finished, scrutineers examined the cars and disqualified the McLaren driver because his car was found to be one and a half centimetres too wide, defying a rule introduced just the day before that defined how wide an F1 car could be. This limit was actually based on the width of the McLaren during the 1975 season, as it was the widest car on the grid, so they left the car as it was for the 1976 season, thinking it'd be fine. However, a change in the new tyres introduced by Goodyear for the 1976 season meant that instead of having a flat sidewall, they now had a bulge, creating the 1.5cm discrepancy. McLaren appealed and two months later were re-awarded the race win, with the 1.5cm difference being seen as minimal. This reinstatement ended up being crucial when Hunt went on to win the championship, beating Nicky Lauda, the temporary winner of the 1976 Spanish Grand Prix, by a single point. There is a conspiracy of sorts that Ferrari tipped off the scrutineers, but I couldn't find anything to really solidly back this theory up. You might recall seeing a little bit about this in um, the major hit film Rush featuring Daniel Brawl and Chris Hemsworth. <laughs> An absolute cinematic masterpiece. Love that film. Lovely stuff. Oh, mm -hmm. that's mental. But it is, it is like frustrating when, like, literally, the the rule is based on your car, and you're like, great, we won't change it, so that we're good in the rules. But then it's like new tires, but a slightly bulgy, and boom, this this much, one and a half centimeters. It's not big. Apologies for any listeners that work in inches, but I cannot tell you what that is. <laughs> that much. <laughs> That's about... Half an inch? How many centimetres again? One and a half. Oh! That's not even half an inch. Or maybe it is. Yes. Let's just stop before <laughs> we make further fools of ourselves. 
So we're on to the next entry and this one is a bit more a bit more serious. Gonna have to chill the tone down just sort of prepare you all. Um there is just in case anyone is bothered by it, there is talk of driver death in this one. So if you wanna skip ahead a couple of minutes, that's okay. So the next entry is about the Ricardo Patrice ban. So, Ricardo Patrice, who raced from 1977 to 1993, is the ninth most experienced driver in F1 history, a runner-up to Nigel Mansell and six-time F1 Grand Prix winner. Sounds like a pretty reliable driver to have that kind of longevity, right? Well, you may not expect that he was banned from the 1978 United States Grand Prix after his fellow competitors threatened to boycott the race. From the start of the 1978 season, many drivers believed Patrice to be over-aggressive and dangerous, with James Hunt being a major driving force behind this narrative. Patrice himself now says that he was probably a bit too aggressive at the start due to his team, Arrows, having to build a new car in 50 days due to arguments of copying by Shadow, meaning that Patrice found himself further back on the grid compared to the very start of the season where he'd fought near the front. Then came the 1978 Italian Grand Prix, an event which is certainly among the darkest in the sport. Prior to this race, Patrice had been warned by other drivers, particularly Hunt, to calm down. Their view of him only worsened after a major incident at the beginning of the race, sparked by a messed up starting procedure that bunched up the field coming into the chicane. This incident involved 10 cars, including Patrice, and caused Ronnie Peterson to suffer major injuries that later led to his death. Although the injuries themselves weren't necessarily life-threatening, alleged negligence by medical staff led to him dying of an embolism. Many senior drivers blamed Patrice for causing this incident, with Hunt believing that Patrice's pushing past caused the initial contact between Hunt and Peterson that led to the pileup. At the following Grand Prix, the United States Grand Prix, five top drivers... James Hunt, Nicky Lauda, Mario Andretti, Emerson Fittipaldi and Jody Schechter banded together and stated that unless Patrice was banned from the race, they would withdraw. Patrice looked to a legal route, obtaining a ruling from the local judge that said a ban was a violation of his right to work, but ultimately Arrows withdrew Patrice's entry due to pressure from the organisers and the FIA. The most controversial part of this is probably whether or not Patrice was actually to blame for causing the incident. He stood trial in an Italian criminal court for the incident, but was absolved of the manslaughter charge. Patrice has always claimed that he's 100% innocent and wasn't even involved in the initial contact, with photo evidence produced at, at the trial suggesting this is true and that it may have been Hunt that was the initial cause of the pileup. Ultimately, in my opinion, Ricardo Patrice probably needed a bit of a kick up the backside to calm down his driving. I think that this prior bias against the Italian driver, however, meant that other drivers almost had tunnel vision when it came to the driver's role in the Monza incident. Whether or not Patrice did cause the incident, though, did not mean that he should have been treated like he was. Um, I wasn't... I don't think... I mean, I don't particularly want to watch footage of it, but I couldn't find any footage of it, so it's hard for me to say exactly it was his fault or not, but it's just a sad sort of... I mean the end of the day someone's lost their life yeah. regardless of whether he is officially found to blame or not all of those drivers involved will carry that with them yep you know he probably still carries that with him that's something that's you know i mean god just i could i couldn't even put myself in that position Especially going yeah, to court, criminal court. This is serious. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's um, it's sad, and as well because it's like, I mean, the big factor in it is as in the messed up starting procedure, which I can't remember exactly what happened, but I think it meant the runners at the back went earlier than the ones at the front. And remember, um, oh, I don't know what race it was because I wasn't watching at the time. But it, you know, within the last few years, it happened during a safety car um, start, wasn't it? Where the back, some of the runners at the back thought that they'd gone at the front, but they hadn't. 
and then that caused a crash it, it's so e- like these things have to be you know have to run so smoothly otherwise dangerous things can happen and you know especially back then when the, the cars weren't as safe as they are now um yeah it's sad and it's sad that he got the blame put on him it, you know you can argue that they were right you can argue that it was a yeah, almost sort of some form of bullying happening happening but um i don't it just i don't really want to say either way <laughs> when someone loses their life in a situation like that whether someone is at fault or to blame or not i don't i think it's harsh to explicitly go you you are to blame you were at fault yes he may have been reckless yes he may have caused the accident but to officially hand him the blame for that i don't think that's fair yeah i mean at the end of the day they're all f1 drivers they all sign up for the sport they know yeah they know the realities i don't know it just seems mentally a lot (laughs) yeah and now i'm gonna need you to take the sort of tone that we're in and move to the other end of the spectrum okay because it, it this is just the wildest shift i cannot believe these two entries are next to each other because that is such a sort of like serious and sad entry and when i tell you what this next one's called um you already know Corey. i already know so our next entry is a uh, nazi orgy <laughs> Yep, that's right, you heard me right. N-A-Z-I space O-R-G-Y Nazi orgy. Thank God we're not sponsored or monetized, um, because otherwise I'm not sure we could even say that. So, yeah. That <laughs> you've <laughs> never, se- you've really, never, probably you've never seen a leap like that before. <laughs> I, I, maybe I should have moved these ones further apart because I just I believe we're talking about Bowen, someone getting blamed for the death of another driver, and now we're talking about Max Mosley's extracurricular activities. Um, so, Max Mosley, the former president of the FIA, allegedly took part in a Nazi-themed orgy. I don't think I have to explain what that is. This was published in a story by the News of the World newspaper in an article with the headline, quote, F1 boss has sick Nazi orgy with five hookers. This led to a few legal cases, although the most significant one is Mosley versus Newsgroup Head Newsgroup Newspapers Limited, sorry. Mosley argued for his right to privacy under the European Convention of Human Rights, whilst the defendant argued for the right to freedom of expression due to public interest. Ultimately the court ruled quote, there was no evidence that the gathering of the twenty eighth of march two thousand and eight was intended to be an enactment of Nazi behaviour or adoption of any of its attitudes, nor was it, in fact, end quote, and that there was, quote, no genuine basis at all for the suggestion that the participants mocked the victims of the Holocaust, end quote. And I think we should leave it at that. You know what? The whole situation is actually legally quite interesting. Uh, Obviously, (laughs) I won't get into it because this isn't a legal um, podcast, but he did end up, I believe, going to the European Court of Human Rights. And if that had gone through, that would have had significant, significant effects on what the newspapers could and couldn't publish. Um, But, yeah. uh, I mean, you... I think you really shouldn't be getting in a situation where people even think that you've done anything like that. Oh. Like, you shouldn't be left to interpretation. I'm going to sense myself out right now, but what a beep. Honestly. Can I just point out as well, this is on tier four. If um, we're talking about this we've now... Got, we've got foo on tier five which i'm like why is is this above foo why is foo on tier five (laughs) uh but i just like yeah that's this by the way i have zero doubt that this 100 percent happened um it's disgusting (laughs) it's wrong allegedly i mean have you seen who his father is you wouldn't 
you would you wouldn't be surprised if this happened but you're not going to say that you're 100 percent certain <laughs> because the court has found against that <laughs> right i'm 99 percent certain this has happened okay there we go <laughs> you research his fa- all of you in your free time yep. research his family research all of that please do and you can make your own mind up you're yeah Exactly. That's on you. Exactly. <laughs> right. Let's move away from that because now we're moving on to um, the apartheid. Oh my lord! <laughs> how are we? How are we inspiring? <laughs> the apartheid so much? isn't funny. It's a change in tone. This is why when I tell you that it's getting spicier and spicier each tier, but I mean you you go from, but I mean. A driver, very serious and very sadly, losing his life and another driver getting blamed for it to the point where he gets banned from the next race due to other drivers boycotting him. To the president of the FIA having potentially Nazi-themed sexual parties. To the apartheid in South Africa, which is again very, very serious. Like... What is this sport? Formula One has zero right to be this dramatic and problematic and all of the above. Zero right. It's it's sport. Why why is it such a mess? I know. But yeah, we're on to the last entry of Tier 4, my friends. And it is 1985 South African Grand Prix. Which is an interesting one to talk about considering that uh, we will be going back to South Africa within the next year or two. I mean, obviously, the South African Grand Prix has been held since now in 1985, but this is one of the reasons why it hasn't been on the calendar in a long time. So, as we're all very aware, F1 has an interesting relationship with human rights and social justice causes. It therefore, unfortunately, does not come as a surprise that Formula One was one of the last sports to stop competing in South Africa during the apartheid, a system of institutionalised racial segregation that existed in South Africa and Southwest Africa, now Namibia, from 1948 to the early 1990s. The South African GP had been held annually since 1967 and continued to run, whilst other sports stopped competing in South Africa and many didn't even allow South African athletes to compete in their sports until everything came to a head at the 1985 South African Grand Prix. Interesting fact, F1 personnel had to have special cards that got stamped when they entered South Africa because if they had their passports, their official passports stamped in South Africa, it could cause problems when trying to enter countries that officially oppose the apartheid. Like, they were literally, they were trying to get around the problem. A few months before the GP was held, a state of emergency had been declared in the country due to growing civil unrest due to the apartheid. As the French government were boycotting and sanctioning South Africa, they put enough pressure on the French teams. Ligier. Ligier. French pronunciation. And Renault to withdraw from the race. Uh, I believe this was before travelling there. There was also pressure from other countries that were boycotting South Africa, such as Brazil, Sweden and Finland, towards their drivers to pull out. And most of the drivers on the grid, including Senna, Prost, Lauda and Mansell, did not want to participate in the race, but felt like they had to because of their contractual obligations. It's hard for me to find how much truth there is to that and how much of it was fear of losing points in the championship, but Enzo Ferrari did state that they would withdraw if McLaren, their title competitors, also did, so take from that what you will. The FIA definitely valued the competition above morality as the race wasn't cancelled, and FIA President Jean-Marie Balleste issued a statement doubling down on the fact they wouldn't cancel it. Interestingly, Alan Jones, who drove for Has Lola, did not participate in the race claiming illness. We now know this illness to have been faked, as Jones has spoken about meeting with Bernie Eccleston, who brought up Jones pulling a sickie due to mounting pressure from US activists, as well as threats of strike action by African-American workers at, I believe, Hazlola's sponsor, Beatrice Foods. Following this race, the South African GP was not held again until 1992, after the end of the apartheid. 
stupid sport. Yep. <laughs> it's uh, it's just, and it, it's. I don't want to doubt the drivers and them saying, you know, oh, con- we had to do ex- contractual obligations. But it's when you hear like, Ferraris like, well, if McLaren don't do it, we won't do it. But only if they don't do it, and it's kind of like. You, you're not that your morals aren't that good to be like oh this is more important than a plumbing competition is this is this a, a performative activism moment it's just yeah and it's the fact they're like oh we're not going to cancel it and it's are you dumb oh. are you dumb though are you really dumb are you stupid I, yeah it just it's frustrating obviously apartheid is long over and we're very excited that f1's going to south africa because it is a world championship and currently a whole continent is not getting a race um so i I think you know going back to south africa will be really valued and i'm I'm really excited but my lord blooming f1 where morals go to die honestly but that is it. The organisation that cares about nothing but money. Yeah. Did you have a favourite entry, Chloe, for this tier? Besides the obvious. <laughs> um, or one that you found more most interesting. I feel like it's been a lot of a lot of. I know it's been a long time. It's been a <laughs> it's been a deep one. Um. Can we have a quick recap? So, today, um, my friends, we went through Hans here. We did. The Williams and Brabham water tanks. Uh, the, the Williams fire conspiracy. Oh, the Williams fight. Is that your favourite? I wouldn't say it was my favourite, but I definitely had no... This interesting. I had no... Um, I didn't know about that conspiracy, so I've learnt something. Yeah. And I think it's quite hysterical to think that the team would take it to the extreme of setting their whole garage on fire just to (laughs) destroy some evidence. Yeah, exactly. Just for a win. Like, let's destroy the rest of our season, potentially, and someone's lives just just so we can get one win. Um, But yeah, that's tier four. If you enjoyed that, tier five's going to get even spicier. Is a bit darker. Uh, First entry and it I I don't like this one but it is an entry is Senna assassination theory so we'll um, get into that one and foo how is that tier 5 and foo if you don't look if you don't remember foo if you weren't around for foo like I'm. I feel bad for you because that was a mo. There's very few moments that unite all of F1 fans, where they support Lewis Hamilton, Max Verstappen, or Charles Leclerc, or Lando Norris. There are very few moments that unite everyone, but Fu was one of them. It was a beautiful moment. Who is Fu? And I don't think it's controversial. Why is Fu? What is Fu? We'll never know. Are we finding all this out? <laughs> Yes, I have. I've got inside. Imagine if I was like, I got in contact with F one. I have an, this is I have what an official statement. I kind of after discussion. We have with the, the exclusive here on to the. To be Rockies. fair, after discussion, discussion with a source, which may or may not be Simon, I do know a good idea of why what happened with Foo, um, contrary to what people may believe. So yeah, that will be. That'll be fun. We might... Look, I might be speaking too soon. Might be able to fit in tier 5 and tier 6 next time. No. No, I'm speaking too soon. Surely. Surely not. Let's not make promises we can't upkeep. Exactly. Exactly. But... Probably... um, uh, No, I shouldn't be saying what we do next week. That's part of the outro. What a silly... I'm just a bad podcast host, honestly. And that is it for this episode of The Rookies. What are we talking about next week? We've covered it. Um, So, potentially Monaco? 
I mean, we probably should talk about a race. It's been a while, so I think good or yeah. bad, it will happen. Also, to be fair, I say Monaco, also the Indy 500, that's happening. We're, we're excited for that. If all else fails, Definitely. we're turning into an IndyCar podcast next weekend. Yeehaw! Sorry <laughs> for that. Um, but yeah, it'll probably be Monaco Indy 500 next week. Of course, it'll pro- probably the Spanish GP the week after, but then after that... If we haven't already, we'll get back onto the controversy iceberg. Unless you would rather we kept on with it, then of course we can do that instead. We've got three more tiers left. In spicier and spicier and spicier. Um, I've seen some things that maybe my life would be better if I hadn't seen them. But, you know, we're going to experience them all together soon. So, let's have fun. If you want to keep up to date with the podcast, then follow us on Twitter at the Rookies F1. And make sure to tune in next week. And have, have a, a day. day. A day. Let's have a day, guys. Has anyone actually commented on our new outro? Or have they just accepted? No, of course they haven't. It's just because no one's ever on made brand. it this far. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, oh dear! Oh dear! Oh dear! I have um, faith. If you have made it, this, what if we? What if we reveal a secret for whoever's made it this far? Actually, what's a fun? Rachel has six um, toes on one foot, and Chloe has four because I actually took it off her foot. And that's it for today, great guys. <laughs> See you next week. <laughs>